All right, you ready to go? <laughs> Let's go on vacation this summer to the Mediterranean. I hope that when I sent my email this past week, you guys didn't get too excited about maybe doing a Mediterranean cruise together, literally. How many of you thought that we're going on a cruise, if you saw that email? I know, but after I wrote that, I thought, we might be onto something there. I mean, right? We got to explore these biblical places. Well, we're going to give you a passport to the Mediterranean. Uh, maybe you don't get to travel out of the country this year. I know those. Uh, we, we obviously sent a team to Honduras, and by the way, they they did um, arrive safely yesterday, and they are worshiping this morning. Yeah, they had a great trip, and. They're worshiping with one of our partner churches there in El Atal this morning, and I'm sure their experience is, is going to be quite different than ours, but what a great experience. When you get to different places, when you leave and see something new, it, it changes your perspective. One of my favorite things that I read um, a few years ago was that change of pace plus change of pace equals change of perspective. When you change the place you are, when you change the pace, you get a new perspective on life. And so while we may not be able to go to the Mediterranean this summer, maybe some of you do, we're going to go and do that together. And we're going to explore these cities and some of these regions that, that we discover in, in the Bible and to see what did, can we learn from first century believers. What did they endure? What did they encounter? And, 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 and how does God's word speak into those? And I guarantee you we're going to find some things for ourselves that are going to stretch us and grow us. And so what is our itinerary as we think about going? We're going to use a New Testament itinerary, and we're going to follow these, the, the letters that Paul wrote in the Bible. So here's an itinerary as we go through the, the Mediterranean basin here. Um, we've got a couple of different cities. Throw up our itinerary. I think that's the next slide there as well, right? So today we're going to start in Rome. Then next week we're going to be in Corinth, and uh, then we'll go to Galatia. We'll head over there. That's actually a region. Then it'll be Ephesus. And then we're going to take a brief trip back home to Columbus for uh, the church has left the building. So we're going to do some things here. Then we'll go back over to Philippi and Colossae, and then we'll have a VBS Sunday. That's a special Sunday here where we celebrate that together, and then we'll finish up in Thessalonica. And so you'll notice, too, the order of this itinerary will be like the letters, the books in your New Testament, beginning with Romans and working our way through Corinthians on through. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And as you think about um, this whole idea of, of traveling and going to these places, when we, I think so many times when we read the Bible, it almost feels like it was, I don't know, I don't, want to say, I don't want to use mythological time or era, like it almost didn't seem like it was real. But these are real cities. These are real places. These are real people. You can go there today and still see the remnants and, and, and the reality of what they lived and what they experienced. And so the Bible has always been written into a real context. Not just some kind of, you know, theology book out there, but something that speaks to a real situation, to real people to this day that has an impact on us. And so when we wrestle with those things, when we look through those things, that's when we begin to learn for ourselves. What does it mean for us today? And so as we look at that today, we're going to begin our tour in Rome. I mean, that's a, I mean, you're kind of starting with the granddaddy of them all, these cities, right? Rome. This is, this is the, the major city. And I've gotten a chance to, to visit Rome a few different times. Once uh, I backpacked through in college with a friend. But my first trip to Rome was back in 1975. And, and here's some pictures that, well, well, this was not Rome. That was, that was me cruising the Mediterranean. Uh, so we're, we're getting ready. That's, that's me on the right and my sister on the left. So this is the Colosseum. You see some of the buses there from 1975. Um, let's see the next picture here. This was me and my family. In the, in the Colosseum. Um, yeah, I'm the little dude over there. Yeah, I, we had one more sister born later when we moved back to the United States. It's my mom, my sisters, we were there. And then we also got to see uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And so we actually got like a horse and carriage ride or something pretty cool there at Saint, Saint, uh, in front of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. So I've gotten to go a few times. You can move on from that. And, um, 
And, and I got to go, like I said, a few years ago. And when you walk these streets, when you come to Rome, it's such an amazing city. It's such a bustling city. There's so much going on, so much life happening, cars and mopeds and people everywhere. And there's these new buildings mixed right in with all these ancient ruins. And you can't help but walk the streets of Rome and just be uh, captivated by the ancient city and, and the history and the story of this magnificent place. And it's like you're time traveling and you're experiencing all these things that took place. And, and, and so when we think about Rome and you think about history, you know the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire, nearly a thousand years. And as we look at this map here, this Roman Empire stretched from Great Britain to the north to, to uh, Monaco here, in, uh, uh, or Morocco in the south. Monaco's over there. Morocco in the south, and then we've got you know, Egypt down here. You've got Iraq in the west, all the way around the Mediterranean basin. And we think this was an incredible empire in this time in history. And what it, it began you know, centuries before Christ, five centuries, and lasted almost uh, four or five centuries after Christ. And during this time, it, it, was, it was the dominant force. And you had the Roman emperors, right, the Caesars that ruled. They were, they were considered divinity, like gods, the authority that they had. And, and they ruled with, with might. And the Roman centurion, that was a, a definite you know, symbol of the power of the empire. And uh, you didn't want to come up against these guys. And they kept peace and they kept control of the land for, for many, many years. They were a dominant force to, to be reckoned with. So we had this military might. You had this, this power that was there. But we also have Roman uh, influence on industry and on culture. How many of you studied the Roman gods in, the, in, the, uh, in Greek mythology? Right? You have some of the, you know, you have uh, Apollo and Venus and Mars and Jupiter. Where, do, where have I heard some of these names before, right? Um, the story of Romulus and Remus is actually where Rome gets his name from Romulus, and, and so that's really embedded in the culture of that day. And in this time, there's even a, 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 a 200-year period within the Roman Empire and its history that um, was called the Pax Romana, 200 years of, of relative peace within this entire region. And so many people look to the Roman em Empire as being a good in the world, as being a stabilizing force, as being the superpower. But yet, of course, it has so much history over a thousand years we can't possibly cover. One of the things you'll notice in, in Rome is the architecture. That's one of the things that, you know, that, that like, cities are known for. And we've heard the phrase, Rome wasn't built how long? In a day, right? Took a lot of years. There's a lot of history there. And so we see different, we see different things. This is the, the Pantheon built about uh, 120 AD, so almost 2,000 years ago to the Roman gods of the time. And, and just to think these structures built, if, if somebody built that today here in Columbus, we'd be awestruck, right, that this was being built. And this was 2,000 years ago. Of course, their engineering marvels, the aqueduct system, right, famous for bringing fresh water to, to this metropolis that was just growing and expanding in Rome. And, and to this day, they, they still, they, these, these structures still stand. Water was such an important source. Then we've got the, the, the Trevi Fountain, one of the most famous fountains, probably the most famous fountain in Rome. Rome itself as a city has estimates, as I've been researching, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 to 2,500 fountains in the city. The city is just flowing with fountains everywhere. It helps take some of the, the pressure off of the, the pipes in the system, but continues to bring fresh water because it's flowing. And in this fountain alone, that the tourists come. It's one of the, the habits, uh, one of the traditions is you throw, uh, you throw coins over your shoulder and you make a wish. And they collect about 1.4 million euros every year in, in that fountain that they uh, then pull out and they actually contribute to charity. So a lot of interesting facts in, in, in history, but we also know the Roman Empire has a very dark part of its history too, the persecution that took place. 
you know, we have this magnificent building of the Colosseum, and it really is an impressive structure, again, when you think about when it was built and how it was constructed. But what took place in there, not just the gladiatorial matches that, that were there, but the persecution of, of believers, of lions and animals that were killed, but also believers at the hands of lions and cruelty and, and just the dark part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire came to an end around 476 uh, Common Era, you know, and in, in this entire history, you look back, obviously you can't cover it in a couple minutes, but it was an empire, and it stood for a long time. And yet today, when you think about even some of the Christian history there, you've got Vatican City right inside the, the, Rome. It's actually its own city-state. It's about a two-mile circumference, about 100 acres, so about 10 times the, the size of, of Meadow Park's property here. And think about that's, that exists to this day as, as the head where, where the Pope who leads the Roman Catholic Church over a you know, billion strong is in this very city that once persecuted Christians, that once had this incredible dark part of its history as well. And so this is the environment in which this letter is being written. And, and, and this letter that Paul writes that we have in the Bible, Romans, is written to this cultural context. And as we read Romans, as we begin to open the pages to, to this gospel, and we read through it, we, we begin to see a context of what was taking place. Paul was writing into this context. Some believers were actually in the household of Caesar. They were servants. They were working there. So they, they, it was already an incredible power in that day. And we see as we read through these pages that there's a spiritual lostness that is going on in the, in the culture around. There's a lot of sin. There's depravity. There's sexual immoralities. All kinds of things that are going on in Rome. And he's writing to those things. The, the people are struggling with sin. They're struggling with the culture around and how to walk out their faith in a, in a context that isn't welcoming and friendly. We're going to see this theme throughout the different places that we visit because it's a theme that we still deal with today, isn't it? And then there was this unity in the church. This church was beginning to form and there were these the two parts of the church. There were the, the Jews that had become believers that had accepted the, Jesus as the Messiah. And then there were the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who became followers of Christ. And they were trying to find their way together. They had different cultures, different backgrounds, different histories. And they were trying to figure out how to be the church. And so as we look at this context of Rome, and we think about traveling there, and we think about all that took place there, it's not too different, I think, from our own context. I think there's so many parallels we can draw, right, to, to modern day, the United States of America, global superpower, military might, authority, a military that, that can, can sweep in and do all kinds of, you know, good and evil in the world, depending on how you see it. It's a place where we as a country and as a nation influence so much of the cultural climate within the, not only within our country, but in the world, through Hollywood, through finance, through, through so many different influences, through music. And we have this, this environment that we live in. We live in a melting pot, right, where cultures are, are coming together, people from all different parts of the, the world with different religions and understandings. We're all in this place together. It's like Rome. It's like that empire at that time, and we have to figure that out. What does it look like to be the church, to, to live as followers of Christ in this context? And so Paul writes into this context, and he writes to them, and, and as he thinks about Rome, what he thinks about is how important is it to have a thriving church in this place of influence? To have a, a body of believers who are committed, who are faithful, who are growing, who can show the world something different, and he wants to start a church that he wants this group of people to form. 
Now, when he's writing them, he's actually writing from Corinth, where we'll be next week. Um, he hasn't actually visited Rome yet, so he's writing a letter to people that he hasn't, hasn't met yet, but he knows Rome. He understands Rome. He's actually a Roman citizen himself. And one of the ways, one of the reasons he was on the way to Rome was to stand trial before Caesar. See, he was being accused uh, in, in Jewish circles for what he was doing and, and back, in, back in Jerusalem, and he appealed to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen saying, I want to take my case before Caesar. And I wonder if that was one of his ways to say, hey, I'm going to get a ticket to Rome because I, I want to go there. Because ultimately, he wanted to go past Rome to Spain. So Paul had these, these visions of, of where he wanted to go. And so if we want to understand even the letters that we're, the we're going to look at for the next several weeks in these places, we have to know who is Paul. Who am I talking about when I talk about Paul? Paul originally named Saul, and he, his name became Paul when he became a follower of Jesus. Saul was trained in the law. He was a legal expert in the Jewish law, a Pharisee, who knew the, the scriptures inside and out, and so much so that he said there's, that he thought there's the, the, this whole new movement of Jesus people, the way that, were, that, that claimed Jesus was the Messiah. He said, no, 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 he persecuted them. That was not going to be the path forward. But he had an encounter with Jesus, a spiritual encounter on the road to Damascus. We read about it in the book of Acts, and he talks about it in different places in the New Testament that completely changed his life, radically altered. He had an encounter with Jesus, and his eyes were opened, his spiritual eyes were opened, his heart was opened, and he encountered the Messiah. And from that day on, he was called Paul, and he began to proclaim the good news about Jesus. And he was on a mission. And through the book of Acts, which we'll reference at different times as well throughout the series, we see these different journeys that Paul went on, three different mission, missionary journeys, trips around the Mediterranean basin, starting churches, gathering new believers, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and then beginning a base in these places. And so a lot of these letters are being written either to believers he's going to see or that he's already met and has been a part of. And so Paul sees this importance of, of just starting churches and spreading this good news to the, to the Gentile world, to the non-Jewish world for those who are believing. And, and Rome is going to be critical for him in this. And so he has this, this incredible witness that he wants to share the good news about Christ. And so we read in Romans, if we open up the, the, the letter to Romans now, we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 15. He's writing to them and he says, So I am eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. We right off the bat, why, why does he want to come? He's got one goal. I want to preach the good news. I want to share this good news of hope. What is this good news? The next verse he says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. For Paul, this is so central. I wish this verse is one that we all memorize, one that we all take to heart, that we would say for ourselves, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Jesus Christ. How many of us are too ashamed to speak up about our faith, to talk about it? Oh, we're shuddered. In a country where we claim free speech, we say, I can't talk about my faith. It's not accepted. I'm not allowed to. I'm going to get shunned. Somebody's going to say something bad. I just better be quiet. I'm just going to live it out. Paul would say, come on, man. This is Rome I'm writing to. I'm not afraid of Caesar. I'm not afraid of anyone. This is the good news of Christ. I am not ashamed of this good news because it is the power of God at work. There's power in this gospel. There's power in proclaiming what this is, and it saves everyone who believes. Why are we afraid to share good news? And so he's writing to the believers here saying, this is why I want to come. Because this good news needs to be preached and declared in Rome as it is being told everywhere else. I don't know if, the, if you've read Romans and the last, or the last time you've read Romans, it's a hefty book. It's a hefty letter. It's like a theological heavyweight. 
we should really take about a year to work through Romans. <laughs> and we're going to cover it today in the remaining, what, you know, 20 minutes we got here, whatever, right? It's, it's so rich. It's one of the places where we see in Scripture, in, in all of Paul's writings, uh, just a thorough explanation and just, just methodically laying out what is this good news? Why is this good news? What's behind it? Now, I want to unpack that a little bit today in broad strokes to understand what is this good news. And, and many who have studied Romans and, and looked at it and tried to simplify it and try to help us understand the good news in, in, in somewhat of a snapshot have come up with this, it's been around for some years, called the Roman Road to Salvation. Have you heard of the Roman Road to Salvation? So the Roman roads, you see picture here, were incredible, it was an incredible network of roads. And that's one of the things that some believe maybe is, it was one of the key pieces for the gospel being spread throughout the Roman Empire and the world. That the timing in history was, was not just by coincidence. Roman roads stretch all throughout. There's over 113 different provinces that were trying to be connected. And some estimate that there were, what, I think over 250,000 miles of roads. And many of those, 50,000 miles of those were actually paved by stone. Again, think back. I mean, that's, that's incredible. There were was, there was some 29 great military highways. And so these roads were used to share, you know, resources and, of course, move troops and trade and, and information, people. But here in Romans, in, in this context of Rome, there was a different road that's, that was laid out. Now, Paul didn't use the language of a Roman road, but this is how others have said, if we, kind of, if we walk this path through Romans, you're going to see the good news lays out a couple of key mile markers, mileposts along the way on this road. And I want to go through these five mile markers these in, in the Roman road to understand the good news. That is that power, the power that he says is at work for everyone who believes. And so we, we begin by reading in uh, Romans chapter 3. Paul writes this in verse 10. He says, As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. It's an encouraging letter from Paul to the church. Then verse 23, a well-known verse. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Congratulations. <laughs> everyone has sinned. We all fall short. Who here is exempt from this? Not a single one. Everyone means everyone. All of us. And so the Roman road begins on the first step here is that our problem, number one, is sin and separation. As Paul begins to lay out this understanding of this beautiful good news, he has to begin with a reality check. He comes back and says, we can't understand the good news if we don't understand this first, is that we have a problem. We have a problem. That problem is sin and death. You know, yes, you live under a great superpower called Rome, but there's a bigger power at work in your life. It's a power of sin. And if any of us have ever faced any temptation or have ever given in to sin, you understand the power of sin, the power of temptation, the power to give into that. And the struggle is real, and Paul acknowledges the struggle. He doesn't just come in and say, everyone just be happy and just love and be good. No, no, there's sin, and we have to deal with it. It's present in everyone's life. The struggle happens, and everyone sins. We all fall short of God's glory. Now, we're quick to say in this culture, well, everyone sins. Everyone's human. What's the big deal? Right? That's the, that's, we, we come to this place where we, we don't even want to talk about sin. Sin, oh, you know, you just don't do, just do something bad. Or sometimes it even has like a positive connotation, you know, sinfully delicious, you know, like a velvet chocolate cake, you know. I mean, sin, it is a big deal. 
It's a huge deal. It's a deal. It's sin is something that we ignore to our peril. And the Bible talks about it, and Paul talks about it. He says, look, sin separates us from God. God is a holy God, and there's no impurity. There's no unholiness with him, and he desires that in his people, and he wants the best for us. And if there's sin in our lives, it separates us from God. It, it, it drives this, this wedge between us, and, and not only just in, in our spiritual life, in this world. When we end our services and we talk about living life to the fullest in Christ, because that's what Jesus said is why he came. He said the, the Satan comes, the thief comes to seek, steal, and destroy our life. How does he do that? Through sin, through walking in a way that is counter to what God has for us. And so we don't experience life to the fullest now when we live in sin. We don't experience life eternal with God because of that. There are incredible consequences. So we have this problem of sin. Let's just not wipe it away. Let's not just minimize sin and say it's not a big deal. Paul describes in great detail in chapter 1 of Romans all the sins that are going on in the world, the, thing, the sins that, were, that they were dealing with in Rome. And he goes through them, and he lists them off, and he, and he says, here's the things, there's slander, and there's, there's just ungodly living, and he gets very specific on sexual immorality and the things that are going on and the things that, that people are calling normal and good that are not part of God's plan. And you've bought into this and you're teaching others to do these things. What's going on? This is sin. It's a big deal. But then he says in the second chapter, in chapter 2, as you, you go on, when he says you look around and you, you judge the world and you see this is what's going on, but not so quick. You're dealing with this in your lives too. It's happening in, among the believers. There's things where we're getting our heads mixed up, where we're getting into the wrong things. We have to deal with sin. That's a problem. The Roman road continues, and he reads, we read in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. It just keeps getting better, right? The, that's great. The good news is not, doesn't seem to be getting any gooder, right? It's getting better. I know gooder's not a word. Um, the wages of sin... You get receive a wage for your work, for your effort, for the things that you do. You receive a wage. Well, the wage of sin, when we live in this way, this, the wage is death. Pretty harsh sentence. That's the consequence. That's where we live. And so the, the second part of this thing is the consequence is judgment and death. Now, yes, physical death, but also a, an eternal spiritual death. A spiritual death that begins now and, and is through all eternity. Jesus doesn't, doesn't avoid the topic of, of eternity. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to talk about that because no matter who you are, if they were a good person and you loved him, you're going to see him in heaven. It's not what I read in this Bible. The wage of sin is death. There's separation. You can't just live however you want, do whatever you want, ignore God, and just say I was better than somebody else, and in the end I'm, I'm going to go into heaven. No, not according to what we understand in the way that Jesus revealed himself. It's death, and, and, and the bad news is every single one of us receives this punishment. Every single one of us in this room, that is, that is the wage that we have earned because of our lives. So we, we feel stuck. Without a remedy, we are in this eternal separation from God. And, and here's a life verse if you need one in Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. Oh man, what a miserable person I am. No, nobody has this as a life verse. But Paul acknowledges this is hard. It's hard to wrestle with sin. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? He understands the trappedness of this cycle. And how many people feel trapped? How many of us feel trapped in something? But he says this, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is an answer. 
And this is where the good news, and it's not really good news if you don't understand what, why it's, the bad news is what it is first. You have to understand the context of what is happening, but he's saying there is an answer, and that's number three here. God's provision is Jesus Christ. As we walk this road, yes, there's, there's sin and separation, there's the problem, and then there's death, but there is a good news, and it's Jesus Christ. So the second part of that verse we looked at earlier, right? 623, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And maybe if you've been in the church for a long time, this almost just sounds like we're so used to hearing it, but, but, but step back for a bit. Or if you're hearing this for the first time, or maybe you don't think that, that there's anything worthy or valuable, but here's this free gift of God that says, this is the death penalty, but here's this gift that comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? When? While we were still sinners. He didn't send Christ to die for us once we were good enough. Once we did everything right. Once we didn't mess up anything from the Bible. Once we went a whole week straight without giving in to our addiction. Once da-da-da-da-da-da. No. While we were still sinners, while we were still stuck in that place, he sent Jesus as this free gift of eternal life, right? While we were still sinners, Jesus came. Jesus is the solution to the problem. Why? Because he's the son of God. He's the sinless son of God, the spotless lamb as the Bible describes it, because that's what was needed for sacrifice through the Old Testament. Something had to die. Something had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be shed in order to make payment for sin. And Jesus took that on, and he became the holy, spotless lamb that gave his life for us, and he willingly died on the cross. Sometimes it's called the substitutionary atonement. <laughs> he took our place. He was substituted in for us so that he would take the punishment so that we wouldn't have to receive it. And so this gift has been offered. We read it through the Bible, and it's the greatest news we have is, I've got a free gift for you, eternal life through Jesus Christ. Here's a gift, and whenever somebody hands you a gift, you have a choice. Do you accept it, or do you reject it? That's your two options. I don't want the free gift. I want to do it myself. I don't believe in all that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the full choice you have. That's, that's completely there, but Jesus isn't going to force anything on you. He does love every single person. He offers salvation to every single person, and he gives this free gift to every single person, but he will never force you to love him. He will never force you to spend eternity with him. He will never force you to live according to his plans. But he's saying to you, if you want life, if you want to experience it, here's a free gift. Take it, receive it, or reject it. What are we going to do? The Roman road gives us the answer in Romans 10, at least as far as what Paul says, if you accept it. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the gospel. It's the good news. And this fourth step here, our response to this is faith and repentance. That's all it is asked you, to confess with your mouth, to declare, to say it, not just to, to think it, not to believe, to confess it, to confess your sins, to confess the things that you've done, to confess that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
right? Not my own appetite, not my own sinfulness, not the things that Hollywood says, not that the latest music, you know, person is declaring, the latest star is saying. It's not what comes out of the political parties that, that is our guide to life. What we believe is that Jesus is Lord, and if he's Lord, something else can't be Lord. You can't have two Lords in your life. It's the first thing in your life. Everything else bows to Jesus as Lord in my life, and I have to submit and surrender everything to him. Confess it. You believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead. It's not just believing Jesus is Lord, but that he is raised from the dead, that we literally, as followers of Jesus, we believe that there was a man named Jesus Christ who was fully God, fully human, God's son, who came to this earth, who lived a sinless life. He died because he was accused unjustly for our sins. And they literally buried him in the tomb, and he came back to life, and he lives as the living God today. You have to believe that. If we believe that, that is where we begin to have our spiritual eyes open to a new reality, to see with spiritual eyes and transformation beginning to happen. But it begins with this response of faith and acceptance, to believe in the resurrection. And as we confess and as we turn and repent, we say, God, I've had other things that were Lord in my life. I've had other things that were guiding me, that were leading me, but now I'm going to turn. I'm going to repent. It means a 180-degree turn. I'm going to go the other way. I'm going towards God. I'm living for him, and he is the Lord of my life. This is the good news. And here's the last part of this good news is that the result is salvation and new life. At this point, we experience the salvation. We experience God transforming us in this very moment. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Can you say you have peace with God? through faith. You just have this peace. In Romans 8, 1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I mean, what an amazing gift that is. How many live under this fear of God, this wrath of God, that, or, 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 or don't even care about God at this place, in, in this time and space? But to be in a place where you can say, I can be at peace with God, and that there's, there's no condemnation for me. No matter what I have done, no matter where I've been, no matter how screwed up my life has been, no matter how, what things have been done to me or, or, or the life I'm living, there's no condemnation. Free gift. Salvation. Christ died. Now what? Unfortunately, too many people stop there. I received God as my Lord and Savior. Check. I'm done. But it goes on from there. In the second part of the book, in, 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 uh, in Romans, in this letter, Paul spends a lot of time after unpacking this saying, there's a difference now. After you come to faith and you acknowledge and you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, something else changes. Your priorities change. You have the spiritual power in you living in you, the Holy Spirit living in you that gives you the power to overcome sin, to be and live in a different way. And you don't go back to where you were before. You now start living in a new way. You turn your back to that old life and you start living in a new way. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, some of the most famous verses in the Bible as well, he says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. That you ourselves, you present yourself, we bring ourselves as living and holy sacrifices to God each and every day, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. It's not just singing some songs on a Sunday morning in church. That's one way of worship. 
but it's presenting yourself each and every day, wherever you're at, at work, at school, in your neighborhood, with your family, in your marriage, with friends. You are a living sacrifice before God. And then he says this, and think about this again in the context of Rome. Think about this in the context of our lives. Verse two, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. You're not of the world anymore. You're living in a new way. Don't copy what you see. All we see on social media is copy, 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 copy. Or I'm so original that I'm not copying anyone, but it's, it's, the, it's making up our own things. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, God, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I mean, this, this is so true for us today. He describes all these things that the world is doing, and, and why would we copy that? That is not God's way. That is not God's plan unless it is built on the truth of God's word. And the good news is God changes us, and he gives us the power to live a new life and to not go back there, to not get drawn back in, and yet that, he acknowledges that struggle is real, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit. And we come back to God, and we live our lives for him. So here's this Roman road to salvation. These scriptures were all found in Romans, and, and it's Paul beginning to just, just describing to us to understand what is this good news. And so I ask you, do you have this good news? Have you received this good news? Do you live in the goodness of this news? If we want to accept this good news, we have to understand we are stuck in sin without help from Christ. And as we're stuck in sin, we're stuck in death. And unless we receive and accept and confess what Jesus Christ has done for us, this amazing gift of life, that's when we come to life. And so I ask you, have you accepted this good news? Have you just simply said, yes, Jesus, by faith, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you died and rose again. And you are Lord of my life. I'm putting you in the first place. I know I have these struggles. I know I have these challenges. God, I confess them. I bring them to you. I have not done things that are pleasing in your sight, but God, thank you for this gift of new life. And you leave that all behind and you drop the baggage and you drop the pain and you drop the struggles and you say, I'm walking a new path. And maybe you've lost your way. Maybe you lost your sight and you say, God, I'm coming back to you. And you receive that gift and then you say, God, now transform my mind. Change the way I think. Change the way I live. Change the way I see things. God, don't give me an appetite for the sins that, that once dominated my life. Don't give me an appetite for the things that this world continues to push into my face and say, this is freedom and this is life and this is love and this is that. No, God, I'm looking to you and to your word to understand what that is. Transform my mind and let me live in that way. And you will experience freedom. Life to the fullest in Christ. But it comes when you make that choice, you make that decision, say, God, my life is yours. I give it to you. You may have been in this church for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You can't be in this church much longer than 50 years. But, and maybe you've been around it the whole time, but you have never for yourself declared and accepted this truth. Why not today? And just to know, here's the free gift. Yes, God, I receive it by faith, and I commit myself to you. You know, the Roman Empire didn't last. <laughs> but God's truth always will. You look at like, magnificent buildings. <laughs> you see these things. They've crumbled. 
They fall, they're still beautiful to look at, but our salvation, God's love for us, it's never going to fail. It never ends. It doesn't matter what empire comes, what empire goes, if the United States goes on for another, you know, to match a thousand years of the Roman Empire or if it crumbles right before our eyes. It doesn't matter. God's truth will sustain us. God's truth will last. And I love the way Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, this, this, this truth that we can hold on to. He says this, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that is a confident hope that we can have. I pray that you would have this confidence, that you would have this assurance that you are loved by God and that your life is surrendered to him and he will bring you to the beauty that he has created you for. It may be painful, it may have some hard work ahead, but he is with you each and every step of the way. As we close our time together, I just want you to bow your head. And maybe you've never just acknowledged your faith in Christ. Maybe this moment, maybe just today you say, Jesus, it's time. I want to make you Lord of my life. And you just express in your own words right now, Lord, I ask you for forgiveness for my sins. I thank you for dying on the cross for me. Give me your new life, God. I believe in your death and in your resurrection and that you are alive today. Let Jesus know how you feel. Let him know what you believe, that you believe he is the Son of God. And then with joy and with new life and with hope, receive this gift that he has given you of faith and of eternal life that begins today. And from this day, you turn your back and you turn to the things that, that are around you. Say, God, I'm walking in a new way towards you. This is the good news. And I receive it. And from that moment on, you have begun a new journey. Eternal life doesn't begin after you die. It begins the moment that you have received Christ that you live in a, with an indomitable spirit that lives for Christ. That is my hope, that is my prayer for each and every one of us here. I don't want anyone to leave not knowing of this hope and of this assurance. Would you receive that today and would you acknowledge that before God? And just let him know in your heart that this is a step that you are taking. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this good news. We're so grateful that you completely transformed the, the life and the heart of a man named Paul. That he would have this incredible courage, this boldness, God, to, to, to declare your truth. Say, I am not ashamed of this good news. It's good news for everyone. Father, may, may we be bold in our declaration of truth and of who you've called us to be. As a church, God, may we just joyfully share this good news of hope and salvation. And Father, may we live in a, in a spirit of transformation, renewing the way we think and seeing the world through your eyes, true to your word. God, give us courage, give us boldness. And Father, for those here today maybe taking a step of faith for the first time in this room or listening online, Father, we celebrate new life in you, our hope that we have in you, the new life that you have given us. May we continue on that journey. 
In Jesus' name, amen.